Thank you all for being here tonight. I hope you brought a Bible with you. We're going to be in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to finish out the first chapter tonight. Um, as Peter, um, we, uh, we spent a week or so, a week on the introduction, really kind of setting the stage for the, uh, the theme and, and kind of the, the, the environment that uh, the, the church was living in and, and the, the conditions they were living through um, during, uh, during this age. We talked about how 1 Peter prepared the church for persecution. Um, 2 Peter was written to the church when it was enduring the worst of and really the beginning, just the beginning of Roman persecution that would last for over 250 years uh, that would be state-sponsored, um, uh, an onslaught oppression against the church. And Peter is really priming the church for how they are, how they ought to conduct themselves and handle themselves in spite of the suffering that they're facing. Uh, if you remember, First Peter was all about um, you know suffering for the glory of God, and that suffering is not uh, uh, is not a sign of uh, of punishment. It's not a sign that, that God has forsaken us, but it's rather a sign of of a fallen world that has rejected the gospel um, and an enemy who wants to keep the world from meeting the Savior, and and, and how there's tension. And, and that comes out of that. And uh, Peter writes to us in Second Peter, and, and it may seem, it may have come across a little bit um, like he's asking a bit much from us, uh, because uh, as he addresses the church facing per- persecution, facing suffering, um, he begins to talk to the church about uh, living up to our standards. And, to, and, and that's when we stop and say, well, listen, when I get out of the mess, I'll worry about living up to a standard, but I'm not going to live up to any standard until I get uh, a little bit better off and better conditions to live in. And, and that's human nature, right? Uh, we, we think that when we're going through something, we kind of can just, you know, uh, get a pass as to, you know, what we ought to be doing for the kingdom of God, because we think our plate it may be a little full, but rather it's in those valleys that God still expects us and actually equips us to serve him um, all the more. And and, and Peter writes to us about what it means to live up to this standard of Christian excellence. Um, And and it's really a no-brainer standard that we are held to as Christians because of the divine power that Peter mentioned uh, in verse 3. He mentions it again uh, throughout the the first 10 verses or so. The divine power, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, the power of God that lives, who lives within us, and, and, and it's in His presence, it's in His power, it's in His Spirit that we live and breathe and move and have our being. Uh, and so becoming one with, being filled with, and being saved by and for the Holy Spirit's indwelling ought to, has to, bring about change. A change for the better. And this is an internal change. It's personal. It shows up in public though. Uh, even when facing external pressure, especially when facing external pressure. Peter writes to a group facing suffering. You'd think he's being a bit hard on them, preaching excellence when he ought to be offering endurance tips. But what we've learned so far, and what I think Peter has taught us so far, is that the best way to endure is to excel. The best way to endure through what the hardships that you're facing, the strongholds that seem to be coming against you, is to double down on living for Jesus, living up to this excellent standard that He holds us to, and that we are very much able to live up to and and maintain. And and, and Peter really is telling us and, and encouraging us that we wouldn't allow the external pressure 
The external pressure to intimidate his internal presence and power. That the presence of God that lives within us, the power of God that is present within us, ought not to be intimidated by the external pressure that comes against us from the enemy, that comes against us from the world. That the, the power within us ought to uh, rally us uh, above and beyond whatever external pressure surrounds us. The enemy wants you to cower when he surrounds you. He wants you to give up. And even when you have come through something, he wants to tell you, hey, you know, you've been through enough. Just sit this one out and take it easy for a while. Don't worry about the kingdom or the glory of God because you need to worry about you. It's why the enemy enacts persecution and sets up these earthly strongholds because he wants to intimidate and discourage and disable and disarm his greatest fear which is the church, which is the power of God. But remember what the Apostle John writes, echoing what Peter has taught us. Little children, you are from God and have overcome the enemy. And for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we can have that confidence and we can rally around that promise tonight. I hope that you do and I hope we've learned to do that even more from our time so far in Second Peter. We can't back down. We cannot give in. We cannot cower or waver. We must push forward. We must press on. In fact, in the crucible, in the trials, we must remember the cross. It may demand a cost, but it promises a resurrection. The enemy wants you to look at the cross and see nothing but cost, nothing but loss, nothing but pain, nothing but agony. But God says, hey, the cross, it may be a means of suffering. It may be a tool that brings about a lot of loss in this world. But the avenue to resurrection is through that cross. So in the crucibles, in the valleys, in the torment, in the suffering, in the persecution, remember the cross is not the end. It is the transition to something greater. And God promises that resurrection. And it's only after the resurrection that we can look back and really understand the cross in that context. Of course, we have the privilege of being on this side of Jesus' resurrection. So we see that and we understand the cross through that perspective. Of course, it was still fresh for them. It was hard for them to understand. So Peter is encouraging. He comes at us with some key and core values and virtues of Christian excellence. And you can read those again in verse 5 through 8 as he kind of gives, just fires off a list of what these virtues are. He urges his readers who face suffering that were also facing something even more dangerous, unfruitfulness. Uh, he's, he's concerned that their suffering will make them ineffective as he alludes to in verse number 8. Uh, to, we'll, we'll reread that just to refresh ourselves. He says, for if these things are yours, these, these uh, virtues, these excellent standards, if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter is concerned that the enemy is going to disable and stunt the growth of the believers in this time of suffering. And, he, and he's encouraging them and, and reminding them that, that they don't fall for that trap and hoping that they don't fall for this trap and become unfruitful. Peter is like a doctor giving advice to a patient uh, who doesn't feel well. Uh, maybe you've been there, you go to the doctor, and you know, the, the, he's, the doctor is telling you things are getting better, but you just don't feel it yet. Uh, you don't feel well, you're still in the middle of the struggle, and the, and the doctor begins to give you instructions that you should maintain the medicine, you should continue to exercise, you, you should continue this course of diet. And, and it's hard to receive that, right, when you just don't feel like what's do, what you've been doing is working, but the doctor should know better, and we can trust that the great physician knows better. Peter is telling us, listen, I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but you maintain 
this diet, you maintain this course, you maintain this habit, you will come through this better off. He, he says in verse 10, we'll read through verse 15 to remind of why he is so strongly uh, coming to us with this. He says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, or to live it out. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, they're stumbling under persecution, but Peter says that you will never truly stumble if you maintain these. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, and listen to Peter, and he's, yeah, he comes across a little bit harsh, but I think he's, he has a pretty good point. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent or in this body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be more be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So Peter says, I know you guys are getting tired of me preaching this over and over again, but I'm not going to be here much longer, and I'm going to write this down, because I think maybe it'll get packaged together, leather-bound maybe one day, and it'll be frequent for everybody to read, but maybe not in your lifetime, so I'm going to write y'all enough letters so you'll remember this. Of course, we have the good uh, fortune of having it on our shelf and an app on our phone and available anywhere, anytime, because the Word is that prevalent in our age, but Peter maybe was or wasn't aware of that in the future. Peter doesn't see a future, though, where the church is not persecuted. Peter doesn't ever see that the church is going to have it easy in this world. He doesn't see a day coming soon for the church where Rome is not oppressing them. He's hoping, though, that there isn't a future where the church is not maintaining excellence. He understands that they're going to suffer, and it's going to be a hard road ahead. But he's hoping that there isn't a future where they lose their effectiveness and they lose their fruitfulness. Ironically, though... In our day and age, in our country, persecution is not a thing. It, it very much so is in the Middle East and parts of the Asia. Persecution is going on all around the world. But in our country, we are not being persecuted um, as the Roman Empire was persecuting Christians. Yet, sadly, we also are not living up to our excellent standard either. They had an excuse. We don't. Our reason isn't suffering just various excuses. We make personal hardships. We blame personal hardships. We just, sometimes it's just a lack of interest. We're just distracted. We're overwhelmed. We're busy. Peter is going to address all of us, any of us that are not convinced or not persuaded to pursue excellence in the remaining section of chapter one. And believe me, this is going to be a fun ride, but he, uh, he, he leaves us, I think he, leaves me, he left me speechless as I prepared this because if this can't convince us, I don't know what will. He, he's going to share with us a very personal story that the Gospels gives uh, us a glimpse of that we'll look at. But Peter is the only one of the three that saw that experienced this that he's going to talk about. He's one of the only one of the three that shared just how much it impacted him and how much it continued to affect him on a daily basis. It was in this moment that Peter's going to talk about. It was in this encounter that Peter went from impressed to inspired, from just a fan to a true follower of Jesus. And I think, I don't doubt that everybody that attends church isn't impressed with Jesus. I don't doubt that anybody that goes to church isn't a fan of Jesus. But I do doubt. Because Peter holds this mirror up in front of all of us. And I have to question whether every church member 
is inspired by Jesus. Whether every church member is a true follower of Jesus. And Peter is going to bring that fire to us tonight. And I want, I want you to listen first of all. Peter described this experience. And then we'll look at the passage from the Gospels where, he, where it's detailed even greater. Verse 16. Here's Peter telling us why we should take him serious. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter said, I'm not trying to just pull an over on you guys. I'm not trying to pull your leg. I'm not trying to, to convince you to believe some sort of fable or legend or some religious ideology that you've never heard about or have no understand or have there's that there's no evidence of or no you know validity behind. We are eyewitnesses of the majesty of Jesus that demands our best, our excellent devotion. Listen, he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent, the majestic glory that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Peter looks back at this moment when he, surrounded by the glory of God, heard the Father's voice from heaven speak over the Son who was arrayed in the light and the glory and the cloud of God. This is my beloved Son. This is my chosen one. This is the incarnation of my presence, of my word. He has pleased me. He is everything to me and he should be to you. And we heard this voice, we, referring to Peter and two of his buddies, we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, most of you know what Peter's referring to, but maybe you don't, and this is a good time to talk about this a little bit in detail tonight. Peter's referring to what we often call the transfiguration of Christ. The transfiguration, maybe you've heard of the Mount of Transfiguration, that's what that refers to. Now, the thing about the transfiguration, the transfiguration was not a moment where Jesus became the Messiah. Jesus was born the Messiah. He was born the Son of God. He is the Word of God incarnate. So this was not a moment where Jesus went from being just a man to a prophet or just a man to the Messiah. But this was the moment more so to clue his followers in who he was because they hadn't put all the pieces together yet. So don't think of the transfiguration as when Jesus became something because he always was the Messiah. He just, nobody knew it yet or nobody understood it fully. That moment on that mountain was more for Peter, was more for John and James than it was for Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be proven who he was. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. But this mountaintop experience was for the ones that had not figured it out yet. And maybe it'll help you figure it out too. Here's why I believe that that's kind of where we should, how we should approach the transfiguration. Because just before the transfiguration is one of Jesus' most famous exchanges with his disciples and when he preached one of his most famous sermons. Now, we talk about this story a lot, so I'm not going to go through it exhaustively. Um, we just recently talked about it on Sunday morning, and if y'all have heard, y'all been around me for a while, you know this is one of my go-to. We got to talk about this passage because there's so much in that exchange, so much in that story. So most of y'all will know where I'm going with this quickly, and if you know your Bible, you probably already know. But in case you don't, remember Matthew 16 big, world-changing chapter of the Bible, right? Account of history. Jesus does the whole thing. He's on Caesarea Philippi. He's in front of all these idols, in front of all these pagan temples, and he says famously, who do people say that I am, right? And, and all, they have all sorts of opinions, and they say a prophet, a reincarnated old dead guy that, that used to live to thrive 600, 700 years ago. You know, people have all sorts of opinions about Jesus, and, and Jesus says, well, who do y'all say that I am? And 
of course, uh, there's that moment where Peter does this, you're the Christ, right? You're the Messiah. You're the one who's going to make all things better and all things new. And heaven's bells start ringing and Jesus says, come on down, right? And Peter is, you know, he won the showcase showdown and they're all cheering and celebrating, spun the wheel, you know. Y'all, y'all, y'all know I make that connection too much. Y'all should have already saw that coming. But, you know, Jesus uses that moment to cast the vision of his movement, right? That's the moment where he says, hell's not going to stop this movement, and they're cheering, right? Because if hell can't stop it, then you know Rome can't stop it, right? If hell can't stop it, whoo-hoo, right? We are on the road to success, right? Because if death can't stop us, Rome is going to be gone in a second. So they're all thinking mansions and money and success and privilege. And Jesus says, guys, 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 I'm going to build my church. I'm going to call together a movement, build a movement, and it's going to take the world by storm. Nothing can, will, could stop what I'm about to start. And everybody's, and there's thousands of people there that day. And the disciples, he tosses in the keys to the kingdom and he says, go unlock some doors. Go open up people's hearts. Show them who I am. And of course, you'll remember after this, Jesus started detailing how this is going to happen. And rather than, hey, let's go and let's you know, uproot Jerusalem and let's set the kingdom up there. Hey, let's go take down Rome. Jesus starts telling the crowd that he's going to be rejected and betrayed and sentenced to die on a cross by the religious leaders. And all of a sudden, the mood is just whoo, killed, right? So it's like having an awesome, awesome service. The worship is great. The music's great. Everybody's in a good mood. And the preacher just gets up there and, man, it just, woo, right? Rail downhill really quick. And Jesus starts talking about this. And all of a sudden, people are just gasping. They're scratching their heads. They're looking around thinking, what is going on? And, 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 and you know, they're ready to take on Rome. They're ready to topple the religious leaders. And Jesus seemed to be promising so much. But he's guaranteeing the worst at the same time. And off stage. You know, James and Andrew and, Jesus and, and Peter and John, they're looking at each other, you know, and, and James is like, you know, trying to get Jesus' attention. And, and, and John darts his eyes over at Peter, and Peter says, I think I'll go stop him. He must be having a moment, right? He, Jesus has never had one of these moments, but of course, he's a person like us, so he's just having a bad day. So Peter walks onto the stage and says, whoa, 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 Jesus, Jesus. We're sorry, but Jesus is going to exit right now. He's having a bad day. He's just having a moment. We don't know why he's got distracted with all this death and doomsday stuff. We're going to take him off stage, get him freshened up a bit. Y'all go ahead and leave, and maybe we'll call you back tomorrow and have a better service. But we're sorry. And imagine this would just kill the mood, and everybody's confused, right? Because people took off work, and they were expecting free food again. So this just really just brings everything to a halt. Peter attempts to stop Jesus. You remember how it went down. Peter took him aside and said, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Come on, Jesus. You build your church. Hell can't stop it. What is this cross and blood and death? Jesus. And, and the funny thing is, Peter had followed Jesus so much that he had heard Jesus rebuke people, and you know, Jesus rebuked a lot of demons. Because hell, hell was opened up, just as heaven opened up, hell opened up, and demons were trying to stop Jesus. So, right, Peter had heard Jesus use this word rebuke a lot. That literally means come out. So Peter literally took the word that Jesus used to rebuke demons and used it on him. I mean, I don't think Peter realized what he was doing, right? It's one of those moments where, oh, did I really say that? So Peter rebukes Jesus as if he has a demon. And you can imagine how that may have made Jesus feel. 
Jesus, of course, responds. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, on the things of earth. And everybody in the crowd is thinking, Oh no, what's happening? It's like a political rally where the VP and the president gets in an argument, right? That wouldn't be surprising in our world, but right, it'd be like a, you know, an environment where the two people that are supposed to be on the same page are not on the same page, and everybody's seeing it, right? It's like a conference call where the CEO and his, you know, his VPs and his, his chairman are all arguing, and everybody's like, what is going on? And some people are filming it, and they're posting it online, right? And everybody's thinking, oh, this is embarrassing, Peter just cast a demon out of Jesus, and then Jesus just called him Satan. So what is happening, right? Jesus calls the crowds back to him and addresses everyone. And he says, hey guys, if you want to follow me, just so y'all hear me loud and clear, you got to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, because this guy is not a good example, Peter, the rock, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. And then he famously and poetically asked the question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, Jesus, we're here because we thought you were going to give us the world. And Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you, if you gain or if you save your life, if you think you save your life, if you gain in this life, you're really risking losing it all. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it and give it away for something greater than yourself. What would it profit you if you gained everything but lost the one thing that's most important to you? What is more valuable? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Answer, nothing. But you didn't realize it yet, did you? And many don't realize it until they're at the end of the road and they have nothing left. Of course, this resonates with the message that Peter had given to us in his letters, right? I mean, this is the, that's the Peter that we've read about and we've heard from. The Peter that rebuked Jesus and was called Satan is not the Peter that we've heard from. So clearly, something made a change in Peter's heart, right? And the big reason I bring all that up as we see with Peter's confession, he clearly had a lot of confidence in Jesus, who was a wonder worker, he was a healer. But when Jesus started talking about the ideas of sacrifice and self-denial, suffering, losing to gain, that didn't match up with what Peter thought a Messiah was coming to do, with who a Messiah was supposed to be. Peter, like so many of us, it's easy for us to throw rocks back at Peter, right? But come on. Peter, like so many of us, he was a fan, not a follower. He was impressed and interested, but far from inspired and invested. It wasn't just Peter. It was all of his disciples, Jesus' disciples at this point. But to give them slack, they were brand new at this. They were still fighting, figuring out what a Messiah actually was. It was before the cross. It was before the resurrection. So Jesus decided it was time to make it crystal clear to them who he was. I mean, yeah, Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he really didn't know him as the way God wanted them to know him. A Messiah who did not come to give us stuff and make things better necessarily, as we would see it. But a Messiah who came to save us from our sin and save us for, from ourselves and save us for something greater. Because the Messiah that we hear from Jesus, the Messiah that we see in the teaching of Jesus, is a Savior who isn't interested in sparing us from suffering or sacrifice, but rather calls us to it to save us from self and from sin. 
A Messiah who says there is gain in losing. A Messiah who says there is gain in suffering because it means saving what actually matters. It means preserving the one thing we risk forfeiting otherwise. And that's why the next story in the Gospels is so important. Because the next story, if you, read, if you look down just a few verses in Matthew 16, you see Matthew 17, and that's where Peter's life changes forever. Peter, no doubt, was still confused, a bit conflicted, a bit shocked after this recent exchange. And I'm sure he still hadn't got over, you know, Jesus calling him Satan. You know, how'd that make you feel, right? And, you know, he called, he actually called Jesus a demon. So, you know, they're kind of still working this out, right? So a week goes by. Maybe they didn't talk for a week. Maybe they just kind of had a weird week and Jesus thought, well, let's, you know, we got to figure this out. But a week goes by and this is, we don't know of anything that happened in between this week. So the next story in the Gospels that we're told about Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So just three and and, and Jesus. And he was transfigured before them. Translation, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. This doesn't happen to normal people on a normal daily basis. If it happens to you, we'll talk later because I want to know. But this had never happened before, right? Maybe it did, but we'll talk about it. He was transfigured. So they were on this mountain, and all of a sudden it got really bright. And Jesus looked like he was literally on fire. And man, they were thinking, you know, we've heard about Old Testament stuff like this, but what is going on with Jesus? Is he going to heaven, right? What is happening? And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And this is the point where they thought, are we dreaming? Are, you know, are we dead? I mean, hey, if we're dead, at least the whole calling Jesus a demon didn't, didn't send me the wrong place. And they think, what's going on? So here's Moses, here's Elijah, and here's Jesus in the middle of them on fire. And Peter, because Peter's always got something to say. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. So this really lets us in on how wrong Peter and everybody else was about Jesus. They view Jesus as just their generation's Moses, as their generation's Elijah, as just another prophet, as just another lawgiver. They viewed him on this Mount Rushmore. There was Abraham, there's Moses, there's David, there's Elijah. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah was the father of the prophets. And we don't know what to do with him, but now there's Jesus. So Peter's saying, you know, we should, we should honor these guys because clearly we see that Jesus is on this level playing field. We, have, we, we, are, we were right in thinking he was the next guy in line to bring about the next phase of God's kingdom. They were right in thinking that. They didn't realize that he wasn't an equal though, right? So Peter said, hey, let's build tabernacles because that's an Old Testament thing to do, right? Holy tents where people can go in and see the glory of God. <laughs> let's build tents. And I love this, I love this. Because in verse 5, heaven interrupts Peter. Has heaven ever interrupted you? If it does, it might be the best thing that ever happens to you. As God hears us in our often, our ignorance, in our confusion, in our cluelessness, He overpowers our thoughts with His voice. And sometimes the Word is speaking to us, and it interrupts us, and that's a good thing. 
Because heaven interrupts Peter as he's thinking, well, okay, John, James, let's go out and get some sticks and get some cloth. Heaven interrupts. In verse 5, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud. So, whoa. Peter's thinking, okay, we've got to build some tents. What do we got to do? How does it say in the Old Testament to do it? We don't have any of that stuff. What are we going to do? And it just gets dark. There's lightning bolts. There's flashes of thunder. And all this crazy stuff's going on. Pitch black. Jesus is on fire. Moses and Elijah are just standing there chilling out. And Peter's thinking about building a tent. I mean, you know, imagine, imagine this. A voice from heaven joins the scene. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Not Moses, not Elijah, him. You know what God's saying in this moment? And again, this was so brand new for them because they, they didn't understand who Jesus was. Jesus is not another Moses or another Elijah. He's more than just another lawgiver or just another prophet. Listen to them, him greater than them. That Peter's understanding of what Messiah meant. Jesus was greater than that. He was greater than Elijah. He was greater than Moses. And it says after this, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. Again, I bet they did, right? They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, Rise, have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, no Elijah, no Moses, just Jesus. Now, I want to, this is where it all comes full circle for us. This is so good. This was an Old Testament-like experience, wasn't it? We looked at those verses this morning that just happens to, to line up with tonight. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, when Elijah saw the glory of God. You know, you, look, you read back in the Old Testament of the glory of God, the fire of God, the shining power of God's presence. Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, there's so many crazy stories you read. He, had, he was face-to-face with God. He, he was talking to God like a friend. Exodus 24, no lie, he sits down and has a picnic with God. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? We don't even get any details. Exodus 34, the glory of God passes by and Moses is behind a rock and he just gets to see a little bit of it and has to wrap a towel around his face to keep the brightness from killing anybody. And then you have Elijah, not just the Mount Carmel story, but remember Elijah is so scared because the enemies are still threatening him. He spends 40 days and nights traveling to Mount Sinai because he wants to go and see God like Moses got to see God. And this was really kind of a coronating moment. Moses was the lawgiver. Elijah's the beginning of the prophets. So he goes to Mount Sinai. He wraps his face in a towel like Moses. He walks out in, in, in a, you know, from a cave and he encounters God like Moses encountered God. There's fire and there's clouds. There's a voice. These two represent the two arcs of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the covenant of God and the promise of redemption in spite of their inability to keep their covenant with God, showing that God was going to keep his side even if they couldn't keep theirs. But here's the thing, and don't miss this. Do not miss this. Elijah and Moses weren't there to be considered equal to Jesus. They were there for the apostles to identify with. Because the next arc, the next phase, the new phase was beginning. Because in the Old Testament, the shining glory of God 
that Moses saw, that Elijah saw, here in this story, it is made manifest in Jesus. So when they're on the mountain, it's not for them to say, okay, there's Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. It's for them to realize, wow, God has brought us up to this level. There's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's us. And above us all is Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I mean, Peter realizes, oh my gosh, is he saying what I think he's saying? That Jesus is not just another prophet, he's not just another Moses, but all this, it's all about Jesus alone. He is superior to Moses and Elijah. The gospel is the culmination of both the law and the prophets. And we're here. I mean, come on, John, James, can you believe it? We're here. And it's like what Moses saw on Sinai. It's what Elijah saw on Mount, si- on Mount Sinai. We just had that kind of moment. And we're not dead. And we didn't even wrap a towel around our face. Back in chapter, uh, back in first or second Peter, Peter says we or he received from God the Father an honor and glory with such a voice that came from him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom, I'm, in whom I am well pleased. Peter speaks about that moment when he heard the Father's voice. God displayed the honor and glory of His Holy Son. A declaration by the Father of Jesus' divine nature of His equality with God. Peter confesses that it was in that moment that he was convinced that Jesus was more than just a teacher or a prophet. He hadn't come to advance anybody's personal agenda. His concerns were not worldly affairs. It was bigger than that. It was better than that. Peter, in his flesh, with his small mind, had previously shrunk Jesus to the size of a personal assistant. But at the transfiguration, he saw Jesus exalted in majestic glory. He saw Jesus as God Almighty. He saw Jesus as the I Am that Moses couldn't look at, that Elijah couldn't look at. He saw face to face God in flesh. And John was there too. And I believe that John's Scripture to us in Revelation. Revelation 1, you can flip over and look at it if you'd like to with me. John describes what he sees when he heard the revelation about the end times of the end of days. If you look over just half a dozen pages or so to Revelations 1, listen to how John describes Jesus. I think it is very similar to what they had seen on the Transfiguration Mountain. I love this passage just because it just describes Jesus with such rich and powerful words. John in Revelations 1 says, In the midst of the seven lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head, his hair were like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I see this, I don't just see a six-foot-tall, clean-shaven, nice man in a robe, right? I see a, a, a larger-than-life, universally, uh, uh, you know, bigger-than-the-universe-could-contain a glorious king. 
And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of hell and death. Don't be afraid, John. You remember me, don't you? What do you think Jesus deserves when you see him like that? Everything. What do you think his glory demands when you hear him described like that? Because that, that's the Jesus who sits on the throne in heaven today. That's the Jesus that rose from the dead, that conquered death. That's the Jesus we are going to, right? That's the Jesus, the only Jesus, the Son of God made flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the only God who is not a way, He's the way. That is the Jesus that we serve today. What do you think that version of Jesus deserves and demands from you and me. So if Peter sounds a little pushy or like he expects too much from us, it's because we have the wrong version of Jesus in mind when we think about him. It's because we have a low view of Jesus, a disrespectful view of Jesus. If if we ever feel like the call to discipleship requires too much, or if Christian excellence seems too demanding, we simply haven't exalted Jesus high enough in our lives. Amen? I mean, that's what I get after reading all this. I'm not saying I don't ever feel that way. I'm not saying I'm always, well, of course, whatever you want, Jesus. I'm not, hey, I'm, I'm bumbling like Peter more than, any, more than most. Peter signs off with a few very powerful things to say in verse 19 to 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He's talking about the Old Testament. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of, God, of will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter's talking about the Word of the Old Testament. He's also talking about the New Testament. Peter sees the moment, the transfiguration moment. Peter sees that moment as the moment... The transfiguration was the moment the apostles were validated, added to the foundation of the church. God would speak to and through them, bringing us the New Testament. God would add the next final addition to the canon of His Word. Nothing has come since. These apostles would add to what God spoke to them. His Word and His Spirit makes it personal, applying to us, of course, as we read it, God speaks to us from the Word, and we're, we are to be prayerful in parsing out how He speaks to us specifically. But there are no new words from God. There are no new revelations from God, because again, it was Moses, Elijah, it was the apostles all under Jesus. And Peter is not tooting his own horn. He's just saying, hey guys, you would do well to hear this prophetic word from us. Because we've seen it with our own eyes. You say, well, 
when I read the word, you know, what is, you know, if, if, if it's all said and done, if it's all forever settled in heaven, if I've got what I've got, how should I read it? You know, you hear people talk about, well, God talks to him on the phone every Thursday night. Maybe he does. I don't know. And it somehow never lines up with scripture. But we believe the scripture is the full revelation of God. And if that is true, how should we read it? The word points to Jesus, calling us to follow him. Glorify Jesus. Do all for Jesus. Being made like Jesus because Jesus alone is worthy. That's what the Word is saying to us. And whatever you do, glorify Jesus. Do it all for Jesus. Become like Jesus because He's worthy. He alone is worthy. Peter says this isn't an option. It's a fact. Don't let anyone fool you, he tells us. Take it from someone who saw it with his own eyes. The aim of God's Word in our lives is to bring about His will. The aim of His will is to bring about glory, bring glory to Jesus. And the glory of Jesus, that's the end game. That's what will last forever. And we know from His Word that we should have have a whatever-it-takes attitude to bring glory to Him. Jesus closed that earlier sermon out like this. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. According to did you follow? Did you live? Did you seek his glory? So i got to ask you a few questions tonight. When we get there, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and we're all standing and saved, ready for heaven, what what will be the answers to these questions? Did we follow his word? Did we live out His will? Did our lives result in His glory? Peter was so sold out on the on to, was so sold out to answer yes to all three of these. He endured the worst. He pressed through the most difficult because he knew Jesus had let him see the end game. Jesus had given him a glimpse. He saw where he was headed and knew that between here and there, he only cared about the glory. Between here and there, it's all about His glory. Whatever it takes. God's advice to Peter, listen to Jesus. Hear His word. Obey His will. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I thank you so much for this strong reminder from heaven. God, maybe heaven has interrupted somebody tonight. Heaven's shaking somebody tonight and it's trying to get their attention and trying to convince them that there's only one agenda that matters. Heaven's given somebody a glimpse of the end game of, the, uh, of, of where it's all going. And they've, they've seen that they're not following your will. They're not obeying your word. They're not seeking your glory. Father, as we've been given the full counsel of your revelation, as we've been given such fortune in your family, God, I pray that you might would bring us to this place where we exalt Jesus as high as we can because he deserves every bit of exaltation. Father, may we fall at his feet in gratitude and adoration. God, if there's anybody here tonight that just needs to fall at your feet in a public way. God, let this altar be that place for them to publicly and humbly say, God, whatever it takes between here and there, it's all about your glory. Maybe there's somebody here tonight that needs to rededicate their life. Maybe somebody has never been saved and they want to ask you to be their savior tonight because they see who you are.
God, as the music washes over us, I pray that your spirit would do an even greater job at trying our hearts. May you seek and save, revive us all in Jesus' name. Amen.